Welcome to Long Story Short, sponsored by the Kirkpatrick Foundation. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. In this segment, I'm talking to Lionel Ramos, who covers race and equity at Oklahoma Watch. Most of the Afghans resettled in the United States, and specifically in Oklahoma, arrived under a humanitarian parole designation rather than by winning asylum or acquiring special immigrant visas. Lionel's working on a story that explores what that means for Afghans trying to make a new life in our state. Lionel, what is humanitarian parole? Yeah, so after speaking to a few immigration attorneys about it, it's more easily defined by what it's not. Uh, Humanitarian parole is not a pathway to citizenship. Uh, It's a temporary authorization to legally be in the United States for one or two years and is usually reserved for situations in which a person or a family didn't have the opportunity to go through the proper asylum-seeking channels provided by the U.S. government. So what do you mean when you say proper asylum-seeking channels? Sure. So Afghans have had two main ways of entering the United States as people seeking refuge. There is the asylum process, which is conducted by the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program and is the same one that a person from any other country would use if they feared persecution. Um, For example, some people in Ukraine might use that avenue. Um, There is also the Special Immigrant Visa Program, which is specifically designed to allow Afghans who have helped advance U.S. interests in their country, uh, seeking refuge in our country. Um, It'll enable them to apply and basically get on a footing where they can have permanent residency. And that's the thing. The important thing about both of these pathways, um, asylum and SIV, are that they lead to permanent residency for the displaced, which, as I said earlier, humanitarian parole does not. Well, what are the options for Afghans who you know, have already landed in the U.S. and they're trying to rebuild their lives in uh, Oklahoma or, or similar places? There aren't many. Uh, because of humanitarian parole, most of the Afghans who have come here will have to apply for asylum or if they work for the U.S. or Afghan governments in any capacity, special immigrant visas while they are living here, trying to navigate the adjustment. Those processes normally start in the countries that they're in trying to leave or a neighboring country, and they take years. Uh, The problem immigration attorneys have identified is that backlogs for asylum services are in the millions, and only about 36,000 of the 76,000 evacuated Afghans qualify for special immigrant visas, which has its own backlogs as a a process and service. Um, These things take multiple years, and Afghan refugees don't really have that much time. Do we know of anyone specific facing that kind of uncertainty? We do. Uh, I have connected with two Afghan individuals living in in Oklahoma right now who face these exact complications. Uh, One gentleman worked for the U.S. and Afghan governments and has a special immigrant visa application pending. Uh, The other has no connections to the government and decided to flee Afghanistan with his remaining family after the death of his father. Uh, Both are on humanitarian parole. But one, as I mentioned, has started his process and needs an attorney to help him navigate. He's 40, has a PhD, speaks perfect English. Uh, His prospects look pretty good as far as immigration goes. The other, a young man who just turned 20, has a high school education, says he taught himself English on YouTube, 
and doesn't really know where to start in his asylum process. So what's being done to help those folks navigate their their status adjustments? Or is there anything at all being done? Yeah, there's work being done on a couple different levels. Uh, the most immediate work is obviously being done locally. Uh, Catholic Charities is in charge of the refugee resettlement as a whole. And I understand the organization is working with nonprofits in Oklahoma City and Tulsa to provide legal services for refugees. At the national level, uh, organizations like the International Refugee Assistance Project uh, are working with Congress and the administration to pass what they're tentatively calling the Afghan Adjustment Act. Really, it's a push for a bill, any bill, that would provide a pathway to citizenship for evacuated Afghans. Is there something like that? Uh, is it likely to pass through Congress? It's hard to say. Congress people have been relatively quiet about the Afghan refugee resettlement operation since it started, and even more so now that there is war in Ukraine, uh, which has already displaced millions since it began a month ago. Um, we don't yet know if Oklahoma will be receiving refugees from that conflict. But what we do know is that there were laws passed that expedited permanent residency for people from Cuba in 1966, uh, Southeast Asia in the 70s, and Iraq after 2008. So it's not out of the question. I have yet to speak to members of our own congressional delegation to find out what they think of the whole situation, though. All right. Well, thanks, Lionel. When that story is ready, you'll be able to read it at OklahomaWatch.org, along with all of uh, Lionel's other investigative work, as well as that of the rest of our staff. In this segment, I'm talking to Keaton Ross, who covers criminal justice for Watch. He's been combing through jail inspection reports and found that dozens of facilities struggle to meet state health and safety standards. Keaton, uh, what laws do local jails have to comply with in that regard? So there are, there are dozens of state laws that seek to establish a minimum standard of living in, in jail facilities. Uh, for example, every person uh, detained in a jail is supposed to have a minimum amount of living space, hot water, um, and eat from a dietitian approved menu. Those are just a few of the rules. Who enforces those standards? So the Oklahoma State Department of Health has a jail inspection division that is tasked with going to each jail in the state at least once per year and doing a surprise health inspection. And are those uh, are those reports pretty pretty easy to get to? So they, they are public record, but they're not posted anywhere online that's easily accessible uh, to go look if you're just an average member of the public. Um, I submitted a public records request for every inspection report conducted in the state in 2020, and that took several months to fulfill, and I just now got it last month. So um, probably wouldn't describe it as super easy to get. Maybe one, but getting several was a little bit of a challenge. Well, going through those inspection reports, what were the most common violations you saw? So the most common violation was fire alarm and smoke detection issues. I think maybe uh, a third of jails had were cited for those sorts of issues. And then um, around a dozen jails were cited for cleanliness issues. Um, you know, in some jails, there were overflowing toilets or stagnant water, insects in the kitchen or in common areas just overall unsanitary conditions. And then there were also some uh, safety concerns, standard of living concerns, uh, folks not having enough living space or access to showers, those sorts of things. 
When you mentioned the uh, smoke and, and fire detection equipment, what kind of problems did you see there? Was was there no equipment at all? Was it not working? Was it not enough of it? In a few instances, there were no there was no equipment at all, or it just simply wasn't working. In other instances, it hadn't been uh, inspected recently, or there was an error code or something where they had a system. It just wasn't functioning properly. So I guess there there are certainly levels to the uh, that particular violation. If a jail fails an, expe- an inspection, uh, what what does it take to get back in good standing with the state? So they have 60 days after the health department delivers the report with the violations to correct those issues. If they are corrected after the 60 days, um, by law, the health department may file a complaint with the attorney general's office or the local district attorney. In reality, that's pretty rare. Um, Usually it's a situation where the health department is trying to help them improve the conditions and get into compliance over time, and they're not um, going to immediately file a complaint or impose fines or that sort of thing. What what kind of obstacles does uh, jail administration face when they're trying to meet those standards or or improve the conditions? You know, oftentimes it just comes down to to funding. Uh, Research has shown and, you know, anecdotal stories around the state have shown, um, you know, especially if you're in a rural county, you may not have the same funding coming in that an urban county has to make improvements or pay people more. Um, so that can that can boil down and make it difficult to tackle, you know, those infrastructure issues that have been lingering or um, so those sorts of things. It just essentially comes down to money. Are any of our legislators looking at uh, that problem of of subpar jail conditions? So in many ways, this is a local issue, local county governments, local funding. But uh, state lawmakers have shown an interest in this issue. Um, In September, there was an interim study on prison and jail conditions. And then this session, not directly related to like bugs and jails and Um, dirty conditions and that sort of thing. But there is a bill that's passed the House that would, uh, it would allocate funds that were saved um, from us incarcerating fewer people with state question 780 um, and put those towards local diversion programs and mental health programs. The legislature was supposed to do that years ago, but had difficulty kind of calculating how much money they should be allocating towards these uh, local governments. Okay, what's the status of that bill now? So it's in the Senate, um, eligible to be heard in the Senate, and we'll know more in the next couple of weeks as far as whether that or not that'll go to the governor's desk. All right, thanks, Keaton. You can read Keaton's story about the uh, subpar conditions in many of Oklahoma's jails at oklahomawatch.org, along with all of Keaton's other work and the investigative work of all our reporters. In this segment of Long Story Short, I'm with reporter Trevor Brown, who's been covering a package of election bills that are working their way through the legislature, including a few proposals that would make it harder for state questions to get on the ballot. Trevor, what's the latest on that? Yeah, so last week, four bills passed the House. These all deal with our state question process, and they all would make it harder to get on the ballot or to get a state question passed. 
Um, one of these bills would require constitutional changes to receive 55% of the vote on election day instead of 50%. Another bill would require ballot collectors to gather signatures in all of Oklahoma's 77 counties instead of trying to just get a statewide total, which is the current rules. You know, we talk uh, in this package of bills about uh, the legislature potentially making it harder for Oklahoma residents to get uh, something on the ballot. How easy is it to do that now? Yeah, so it's a it's a pretty uh, steep burden already um, to get a statutory uh, state question on the ballot. You need eight percent of the number of votes for the last governor. Um, that means it's about ninety six thousand, and these have to be registered voters throughout the state. Constitutional change would require almost double that amount, and all this has to be done in a ninety day window, which not a lot of groups have been able to do in the last decade or so. So that makes it expensive, doesn't it? I mean, you have to pay a lot of uh, signature collectors. Um, I mean, there's no way you can do that with a couple of people. So it's a, a costly process uh, to to meet those requirements, isn't it? Yeah, there's been a few state questions that have been put on the ballot just through the pure grassroots, you know, volunteer. But, you know, most of the, the campaigns in recent years that have gotten on the ballot has used paid um, ballot collectors. I talked um, with a, a person from the American Civil Liberties Union. They helped with some of the criminal justice um, state questions in the past couple of years. They had hundreds of volunteers and paid ballot collectors out there, and that's they said that's the only way they could have met the requirements. To get that many signatures in that small window. Yeah, that's okay. tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars. What are advocates and groups that have pushed initiatives saying about this? Yeah, so they're saying if this these set of bills go through and, and, and take effect, this effectively will kill citizen-led petitions in Oklahoma for, you know, the, the upcoming future, you know, outside of groups that are very, very well-funded, very well-organized. Um, you know, most grassroots campaigns wouldn't have a chance to make it under these new requirements you know, as we said, the, the current requirements are already stringent and puts it out of reach for many small groups, at least. So what's motivating lawmakers to make it harder for uh, Oklahoma residents to get something on the ballot? Yeah, so the thing that opponents, and these are advocates, um, Democrats are, are arguing is that this is retribution for some of the state questions that have passed in recent years. Um, specifically, they mentioned Medicaid expansion, um, medical marijuana and some of these criminal justice reforms. Some of these po- these proposals weren't too popular in the in the state capitol among um, you know the governor and some people in Republican leadership. You know, so there's there's a thought process of this. They don't like what happened in the past. They want to stop in the future. Now, you know, some lawmakers during the debate and you know my interviews with them, they said this is part of the whole urban rural divide that Oklahoma was kind of struggling with. You know, a lot of rural lawmakers are pushing for this because they say, you know, Tulsa and Oklahoma counties can pretty much, you know, they got so many people that they can vote and pass whatever policy, even though, you know, people in the western or eastern parts of the state may not may not feel the same. Okay, but just just to be clear, these are uh, petitions that in order to get them on the ballot require um, 
a percent or so of the number of people who voted in the most recent gubernatorial election. These are measures that, um, by that process, Oklahomans want to have an opportunity to vote on. And in a couple of those uh, recent uh, pieces that you mentioned, medical medical marijuana, uh, some of the criminal justice reform issues, Medicaid expansion, um, the vote is by everyone in Oklahoma, and a majority of voters uh, pass those uh, propositions. Um, Yet we have some lawmakers who don't like them and, and want to make it harder for the people of Oklahoma to be able to do that. Yeah, it kind of goes down to the you know the power struggle between you know who should have it, should the legislature have it, should the people have it. Um, you know, Oklahoma has a long history of of you know having these initiative petitions, and you know we have a whole populist kind of background in, in our state, and you know obviously there's a you know push and pull with the legislature. They want to have they say you know they're elected, sent to the capital to make these decisions. But we also have a form of direct democracy, and those two, you know, pathways are kind of competing at times. Well, it, you know, you mentioned that Oklahoma has a, a long history of that that sort of direct democracy or that version of it. How does our system compare to other states? Do uh, you know are are people able to get uh, kind of citizen led initiatives onto the ballot elsewhere? Yeah, so I, I did some uh, good amount of research for this upcoming story where I compared Oklahoma to other states. So only about half the country has initiative petition process at all. So Oklahoma is one of, you know, 24, 25 states that even allows, you know, this process. But of all those states, Oklahoma has some of the stringest rules already. Um, you know, things like the 90-day period for um, collecting signatures, some other states allow months, some almost a year. Um, I discovered there's a few states with geographical requirements, such as, you know, they need to get um, so many signatures in X number of counties. I didn't find any states with the type of proposal that the legislature is looking at that would require every county and at this amount. So it looks like this went through, we would have easily one of the hardest um, ballot initiatives just to get on the ballot of all the states that allow it. So uh, why are those legislature legislators pushing for this? I mean, this seems to me the kind of process that, that defines government, you know, of the people and by the people. Sure. So uh, wh- why would anybody be opposed to, to that process? Yeah, so another, uh, you know, concern that some of the lawmakers that are bringing this have said is that, um, you know, they have discovered that people in their communities are not aware of the state questions and their ramifications by Election Day. You know, they make the claim that, you know, having the signature collectors in there, you know, say Woodward County, you know, in the Panhandle, in the eastern part of the state, you know, if those collectors were there, you know, there'd be People talking about these issues months before Election Day, you know, um, you know, people have said that doesn't hold too much water. You know, they could find out information online in their local newspapers or even through their, you know, lawmakers through their constituent services. The legislature can also send measures to a vote of the people themselves. Uh, how 
how would they be affected by this package of bills? Yeah, so the the bill that re- would require 55% for constitutional amendments, that would also apply to anything that the legislature sets on the ballot. So the legislature can send a proposal to the vote of the people just by a simple majority vote in the legislature. Um, you know, the, the kind of the ironic twist of all of this is that if these proposals do get pass the legislature this year, they'll be put on the ballot later this year under the current rules, not these new, more stringent rules. How close was the vote on uh, some of those proposals in the House, and what did they face in the Senate? Yeah, the votes weren't very close at all. Um, it was almost entire, entirely a party-line vote with Democrats opposing it, Republicans um, supporting it. The proposal that would uh, require signature collectors to go to all 77 counties and get X amount of um, signatures there, that one passed with, I think there was about four or five Republicans who joined Democrats. Um, Most of these Republicans were ones that represent urban districts, which is a kind of interesting take um, that maybe this is not so much of a Republican versus Democrat issue, is it? urban versus rural representation issue. Um, But yes, now this will be going to the Senate. Um, Senate leaders haven't really talked about this bill, but given the vote in the House, it would seem that there would be a good deal of support if it gets, you know, on the House floor or the Senate floor now. Um, You know, all these decisions are up to legislative leaders. We have something about a thousand plus bills still alive and two months left, so kind of up in the air if they'll see this as a priority or not. All right. Now, you mentioned that even if the bill passes the legislature, uh, uh, it doesn't just go to the governor and become law, right? So what else has to happen? Yeah, like I was saying, so this would be put on the ballot. It would likely be on the um, upcoming primary or general election. Um, You know, this is asking, it's kind of interesting to be asking voters to take power away from themselves, um, which would be you know, surprising if they did that. But, you know, obviously the people I talked to said they're very concerned that lawmakers, um, you know, are going to keep on bringing up this message that, you know, we don't want Oklahoma County and Tulsa County to decide our policies alone. So there could be, you know, some support in the rural parts of the state for this type of proposal. Okay, now you've uh, already published some work on this. There's uh, more, I'm sure, in the pipeline. What kind of feedback have you gotten so far? Yeah, so I, I've I've heard, uh, you know, I got a few emails and calls from individuals and groups. Almost unanimously, people are not happy with this. Um, like I was saying before, anytime you try to take away power from, you know, the people or, you know, kind of shift the power dynamics, people are going to be, you know, upset with that. So a lot of people have um, emailed me, and I mentioned this in my newsletter, and they're not happy about it. They are afraid, you know, they're pretty much, like I said, this could effectively spell an end to the state's initiative petition process altogether, and a lot of people don't want to see that. All right, now there's another bill that would add some additional hurdles for state questions that include uh, some kind of cost, right? What can you tell us about that one? Yeah, so this one's not garnering as much attention as the two previous ones that I talked about. But uh, so this proposal 
Well, last year, the legislature passed a bill that requires state questions to include a fiscal impact if there's, you know, costs involved. This new proposal would require the state auditor to do their question themselves. Um, you know, this has prompted some concerns that the, you know, the state auditor is obviously a, a elected political position and having that person decide, you know, what a state question may cost um, could be problematic, as we saw with Medicaid expansion. Governor Stitt and a lot of Republicans said this would cost a lot more than it actually decided um, it costs in the end. It hasn't um, cost the state anything, at least this year. So this would definitely make state questions a little bit more politically charged. All right. Well, thanks, Trevor. You can uh, read all of Trevor's coverage on uh, this year's legislative session at oklahomawatch.org. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we're grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Oklahoma Watch would like to give our readers and supporters an opportunity to get to know our journalists a little bit better. On April 7th at 7 p.m., we'll be hosting Local Lives at the KOSU studios on Film Row at 7 p.m. For $10, come down and join us for live music, drinks, and a live storytelling event where you can hear personal stories from our journalists and others told live at the KOSU studio. For more information, look at oklahomawatch.org or buy tickets at Eventbrite.